I have no music because of licensing issues. Oh, so, because there was a piece of music I inquired about, <laughs> and they gave me a quote, and I said, "There's no way I'm paying that." Yeah. So there's no introduction music. Fair Good. Just so you know. <laughs> I can sing something if mm. I want. If I'd known, okay. I'd have brought my toy. If I said yes, would you do that? I'd just. Uh, yeah. I don't think anyone would have written what I'm, I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Well, you have 20 seconds to, to sing something. Instruction music. Yeah. What's the name of the show again? <laughs> it just so happens. It's it the sexual exploits of. Oh, no, no, that's the other one. Uh, that's, that's it my just show. so happens. Yeah. Um, uh, history. History, full of stories and mysteries. On this day, what happened? Well, let's find out now. <laughs> Welcome to It Just So Happened. How marvellous. Well, I'm Richard Paulswood, stand-up comedian and amateur historian, and this is the Alternative History Show. It's a show of two halves, where in part one, we'll explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 4th of May. And in part two, we'll develop some alternative histories for the location of today's show, which is Brighton. Yeah. Or should I say Brighton and Hove? Yes, yes you should. Yes, I <laughs> so we're performing today as a show in the Brighton Fringe, which is England's largest arts festival, with over 4,500 performances and events taking place over the month. We're guests of sweet venues, as we perform today in their works building in the heart of the lanes. Sweet run shows in Brighton, Dundee and at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe with high quality venue spaces with excellent facilities. You can tell this is from their programme. Uh, <laughs> programming the very best in local, national and international theatre, so we'll try and meet their standards. Uh, with this in mind, we now introduce today's panel. Uh, so please welcome John Rands, <laughs> Vladimir McTavish, Shaw Wiley and... James Benison. So our first guest, John Rands, was squadron leader of the Red Arrows and appeared on This Is Your Life in 1996. Unfortunately, that's not the John Rands who is with us today. <laughs> uh, the John Rands who is here is a Brighton-born comedian and writer who is regularly performing in the city as well as in other places such as London, Leicester and Lancaster. He says he's open to offers of work from any other places, beginning with L. <laughs> uh, during history class at school, John didn't study and was forced to repeat it. John is not a morning person, so... Uh, no, not a morning person no. as such. I generally hate it when people I care about die. <laughs> <laughs> Over to you, John. Uh, right. So, it just so happened that 40 years ago today, the world changed forever. The year was 1979, and it was a very different time. There were only three channels on TV. You had to run 26 miles to eat a Snickers bar. <laughs> and uh, worst of all, I wasn't even born yet. On the 4th of May, 1975, Margaret Thatcher became the first female Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Now, if you might sing a certain amount of tension in the room, it's because I've mentioned Thatcher in Brighton, <laughs> uh, a town that considers The Guardian that right-wing rag. <laughs> um, it's easy just to spend time slagging off Margaret Thatcher. Dear God, is it so easy. Um, I mean, with my background, I come from a northern family. My granddad was a proud union man. He's, he's the kind of person who would have considered calling Margaret Thatcher the worst human being alive, damning her with faint praise. Um, but you have to admit, Margaret Thatcher did change the face of Britain forever. 
Admittedly, the same could have been said about the Luftwaffe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> born Margaret Hilda Roberts, uh, she is, of course, the daughter of the Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, <laughs> from whom she learned to take no prisoners. Uh, famously, uh, as a youngster, she worked for J. Lyons and Company, uh, where she was a scientist who helped emulsifiers uh, used in popular ice cream vans. As such, I consider it a tragedy that no one has ever written a biography called From Mr. Whippy's a Cabinet Whips. <laughs> uh, Margaret Thatcher was the Secretary of State for Education before she became PM, uh, and one of the most infamous uh, decisions she made was she ended free school milk, uh, where she gains the name Thatcher the Milk Snatcher. <coughs> the uh, nickname was supposed to demoralise her, but all it really did was make her feel better about her choice not to marry her first boyfriend, Barry Tucker. <laughs> uh, Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister 40 years ago today and she remained Prime Minister for 11 years. Now to give context to just what a scape of time that is, if you think about the career of the Beatles, all of the songs they did, all of the impacts they had, the Beatles as a band only existed for 10 years. Margaret Thatcher's reign as PM was one year longer. Now interestingly, John Lennon was killed one year after she became Prime Minister. Coincidence? Well, yes, obviously. <laughs> uh, Margaret Thatcher was a pioneer. Uh, she's famous for assembling a cabinet that collapsed under the slightest pressure she put on it years before the first IKEA store arrived in Great Britain. <laughs> uh, Margaret Thatcher was very TV savvy. Uh, when Spitting Image started portraying her puppet in men's clothes, her own wardrobe started becoming more masculine. She wore more masculine suits, trying to own the image they'd given her. She was also famously a big fan of the TV series Yes, Prime Minister, which she felt portrayed a very accurate picture of Westminster at that time. Uh, for similar reasons, Theresa May now watches lots of reruns of Chucklevision. <laughs> uh, lots of people missed Margaret Thatcher. Uh, on the 12th of October 1984, the IRA missed her. Uh, but took out a very pretty hotel in Brighton. Obviously, I couldn't talk about Thatcher and Brighton without mentioning the Grand Hotel. There was a loss of life, so the event itself isn't funny, and I didn't want to find humour from there, and I was struggling where to find the humour. Fortunately, the Sun newspaper puts the low in yellow journalism, uh, and if you fast forward a few years, uh, there was an editorial uh, that I'm going to read to you now. How am I doing for time? Uh, I might abridge this a little bit. So this is from the Sun newspaper. Town of shame! Four years after the IRA bomb, the Tories bravely returned to Brighton. But in a local newspaper poll, 73% of Brighton people say the Tories are no longer welcome. Many claim the extra security infringes civil liberties. What liberties do they prefer? The liberty to plant a bomb unhindered? <laughs> Brighton has become a nasty town of drugs, gays, aids and drunks. If they took a poll in Brighton about the second coming of Christ, they'd probably get a no vote on that as well. <laughs> Now, I'm no theologian, but I'm pretty sure the second coming of Christ is the apocalypse. So I'm, I'm voting no on that myself, to be honest. Uh, Margaret Thatcher left power on the 28th of November 1990. To give some context to how people felt at the time, the person who told me this news told me about her leaving power uh, and finished with the phrase, let them ditch the bitch. <laughs> now, that's quite strong in itself, but you have to consider that I was in primary school and it was my teacher who said this. <laughs> that is a true story. <laughs> uh, after she left power, her uh, husband Dennis was given a baronetcy, which raised her title to lady. Later on, she was given a further title, so at the end of her life, she had the title Baroness Thatcher. Uh, there are unconfirmed rumours that the reason why she got the extra honour was because the Queen thought that Lady Thatcher sounded like a personal grooming product. <laughs> 
Um, there is a thorny issue of Margaret Thatcher's legacy because lots of people look down on it, but if you took away the context and if you didn't know who I was talking about, and I said to you that there was a woman in history who, as a child, had given up her own pocket money to support a refugee, a Jewish refugee escaping um, the Nazis. Uh, she was a scientist who worked on products that are still around today, a, a woman scientist in that era. She married a divorcee when that was still a massive taboo. After that, one of the royal family had to take stuff out of succession to marry a divorcee. She retrained from science into law while raising twins, and she redefined the role of women in politics. If you heard about someone who did that, people would be calling out for that person to be celebrated. But Thatcher isn't, only because of what people think of her and because of all the things she thought and said and did. <laughs> um, and maybe it is time that someone stood up and raised their arm and said, maybe we should take a second look and, and think about Thatcher again. Uh, but that person won't be me, because I went to school in the 80s and my bones are far too brittle to do something <laughs> like that. Thank you very much. Thank you, John Rand. It was the 4th of May 1626 when Peter Minuit arrived in the Dutch North American colony of New Netherland as its third director and third governor. He was a Walloon from the Duchy of Cleves in present-day Germany. His name means midnight in French. In 1625 he joined the Dutch West India Company and they sent him and his family to New Netherland in search of tradable goods other than the animal pelts which were the major export from the colony. He organised the purchase of what is now Manhattan Island in New York City from the Lenape Native Americans to become New Amsterdam. New York, New York, so good they couldn't agree on what to call it. Now known as the Big Apple, the Dutch really should have called it the Big Cheese. <laughs> A common account states that Minuit purchased Manhattan for $24 worth of trinkets, perhaps about $1,000 uh, in today's money. That was from Seisei's chief of the Kanaseis. So if President Trump thinks that the Iran deal was the worst in history, maybe he doesn't know about this one. A similar purchase of rights in Staten Island, uh, Minuit also took part in, involved duffel cloth, iron kettles, axe heads, hose, wampum, drilling awls, Jews harps and other diverse wares. Uh, during Minuit's administration, the population grew to almost 300, so it was hardly clogged full. <laughs> uh, in 1631, the Dutch West India Company suspended Minuit from his post and he arrived back in Europe to explain his actions, but was dismissed. So he lived in Cleves for several years before making arrangements with the Swedish government to create the first Swedish colony in the New World in the spring of 1638, and that was located on the lower Delaware River. It was called New Sweden. They constructed Fort Christina later that year, then returned to Stockholm for a second load of colonists. On the return trip, they visited the Caribbean to pick up tobacco, intended for resale in Europe to make the voyage profitable, but the ship Minuit was visiting at St Kitts was lost with all hands during a hurricane and effectively helped scupper Sweden's colonisation attempts. Bob Dylan mentions Minuit in his song Hard Times in New York Town in the following line, Mr Hudson come a-sailing down the stream and old Mr Minuit paid for his dream. But in the released recording of the song, Dylan calls Mr. Minuit, Minnie Mistuit. And even the official lyrics misspell Minuit as Minuet. So that's more history than humour, it seems. <laughs> uh, so on to our second guest now, Vladimir McTavish. Now, Vladimir joined us in Glasgow at the show previous to this one. 
so I probably don't need to reintroduce him, but I will just mention again the fact that he's so popular with other comedians, certainly up in Scotland, that his own 60th birthday party in Glasgow won the Best Event Award at the Scottish Comedy Awards two years ago, uh, something we still all look fondly back on. So please welcome Vladimir McTavish. Yes, on this day, the 4th of May in 2007, Alex Salmon became First Minister of Scotland, the first nationalist First Minister um, since the creation of the Scottish Parliament, uh, which set in train a series of events that led to the independence referendum in 2014. Alex Salmon probably did nearly as much to promote the cause of Scottish independence as Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> Because until Thatcher came along, we weren't bothered. Um, yeah, Alex Summers set up the 2014 uh, referendum on independence. Um, totally losing sight of the fact there's various different ways to gain independence. You don't need to necessarily have a, a referendum. If you look at history, uh, America, we're just talking about, fought a war of independence. Ireland fought a war to gain independence. In fact, Indian independence was largely brought about because Gandhi went on hunger strike to bring down the British Raj. Now, you can hardly see Alex Salmond going on a hunger strike. <laughs> there may well be a second referendum on independence in the light of the, the Brexit vote, uh, and I sincerely believe that uh, Scotland will become independent in my lifetime, and that is a pretty bold statement to come out with, because I'm 62 and I'm from Glasgow, <laughs> so statistically, I died five years ago. Right? <laughs> um, what Salmon did was he established the Scottish Parliament as a main, uh, a main legislative uh, chamber, because it hadn't been up until then. Up until then, it had been very much seen as a branch office of London. People really didn't identify very much with Scottish politics. We'd had a couple of scandals there. Jack McConnell, the previous First Minister, who people could have walked past in the street without knowing who the guy was. Um, he was involved in a little bit of a scandal when he went on holiday with Kirsty Walk. They made a bit of a scandal when Tommy Sheridan, the Scottish Socialist, was meant to visit the Swingers Club in Manchester. But there wasn't a great profile to Scottish politics. But um, when Salmon came to power, he very much, it very much became a personality-led um, regime that he had. In fact, a lot of people wondered what would happen if Alex Salmond fell under a bus. So I actually contacted my local bus company in Edinburgh Lothian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they issued the following statement. We simply do not have any vehicles in our current fleet which can withstand that kind of impact. <laughs> um, the reason that Salmon was, became First Minister on the 4th of May, um, when the election was actually held on the 3rd of May, was because there had to be several recounts. Um, there were 100,000 spoiled ballot papers in that election. And put that into context, the population of Scotland's 5 million. Obviously, quite a lot of them can't vote because they're too young. Uh, the turnout was basically about 2 million people voted. And out of 2 million people, 100,000 couldn't quite work out how to do it properly. Uh, that's 5% of the people that voted got it wrong. They spoiled ballot. In fact, people got so uh, irate about this whole thing about spoiled ballot papers, a guy in Edinburgh attacked his local polling station with a golf club. 
which I think is a particularly Edinburgh way of making your feelings <laughs> felt. <laughs> Most other cities in Scotland, the sports equipment of choice would have been a baseball bat. But yeah, um, so at the time I uh, wondered how that great Scottish poet, William McGonagall, would have chronicled the sport ballot papers in the 2007 Scottish election. So I wrote a poem in homage to William McGonagall. In 1997, the Scottish Constitution was rewritten by the act of devolution. There will be a Scottish Parliament, the First Minister Donald Dewar said, but alas, before it opened, he was sadly dead. <laughs> Although his statue now stands in Buchanan Street in Glasgow, often with a traffic cone on his head. <laughs> when the building opened, people came from all around to see what they were getting for their £400 million. <laughs> they flocked to Edinburgh to visit Holyrood, but when they saw it, many said, I don't think that's very good. <laughs> the nation's leaders gathered there to talk, unless they'd gone on holiday with Kirsty Ward. <laughs> each, me each member carrying out their parliamentary role apart from Tommy Sheridan, who was allegedly down in Manchester at the time, getting his hole. <laughs> in 2007, election day was set for Thursday the 3rd of May, but it caused many people much distress and dismay. The spoilt ballot papers numbered 120,673, <laughs> The same amount of people as live in the city of Bonnie Dundee. <laughs> which the English treated with much merriment and glee. South of the border they did laugh and gloat, saying these bloody jocks don't even know how to vote. <laughs> but it's wrong to blame the entire population for a highly confusing system of proportional <laughs> representation. <laughs> yeah. That is what happened on this day in 2007. That's great. Thank you very much. Vladimir Metavish. <laughs> on this day in 1655, Bartolomeo Cristofori di Francesco was born in Padua in the Republic of Venice. An Italian musical instrument maker, he invented the piano. In 1688, he was recruited to work for 12 scudi a month for Prince Ferdinando de Medici who was a lover and patron of music. At this time, the Grand Dukes of Tuscany employed a large staff of about 100 artisans who worked in the Galleria dei Lavori of the Uffizi, uh, which Cristofori found was too noisy. He later obtained his own workshop and kept one or two assistants working for him. The first unambiguous evidence for the piano comes from the 1700 inventory of the Medici. Uh, the entry for the piano begins. The Arpicembalo, literally harp harpsichord, by Bartolomeo Cristofori, of new invention, che fa il piano e il forte. Uh, so it produces soft and loud. Our own word for the piano is the result of a gradual truncation over time of these words. Although Black Lace did try to lengthen the name for the instrument again in their song, I Am The Music Man, calling it Pia Pia Piano. <laughs> piano, Piano, Pia Pia Piano, Pia Piano. I suspect that piano was not their forte. <laughs> uh, by 1711, Cristofori had built three pianos. He continued to make pianos almost up until his death in 1731, continually making improvements. Uh, three of his pianos do survive from the 1720s, and they're in New York, Rome, and Leipzig. 
Uh, and these have almost all the features of the, of the modern instrument, although couldn't produce uh, an especially loud tone. One reason why the piano spread slowly at first was it was quite expensive to make and thus was only purchased by royalty and a few wealthy private individuals. Uh, maybe at that time people hadn't figured out how to find and shoot elephants uh, to make the ivory keys. It was only the invention of cheaper square pianos in the 1760s, along with generally greater prosperity, which made it possible for many people to acquire one. So it's become popular to see street pianos appearing at places like railway stations. Uh, I was waiting to catch the last train back last Saturday after a night of drinking, and people were playing the piano in the concourse. I couldn't resist having a tinkle myself, but was crestfallen when I got shouted at and given a spot fine for urinating in a public place. <laughs> Uh, on to our third guest, uh, no particular segue there. Uh, <laughs> I do play the piano. <laughs> oh, well, there we go. So there is a connection. Uh, uh, our third guest is Shar Wiley. Now, she's been described as like your nana, but not. Uh, comedy was on Shar's bucket list when she signed up for a comedy course at the age of 62, which is mm. coincidentally the age that uh, Vlad is now. And she's still going strong, to her surprise and delight, uh, a few years later. Her most recent accolade was being shortlisted by Leicester Comedy Festival as one of the UK's 20 funniest comedians over the age of 55. Her natural charm and endearing personality, I'm told, will send you away wanting to hear more. So there's, there's a build-up for you. Please welcome Shah. Thank you. Hello. Today I'm wearing my history hat. Uh, for listeners, it's a very glamorous, I mean, would I lie to you, Egyptian mummy on a bejeweled headdress on a mummy, well, a nana, really. The film, The Mummy, was released on this day, May the 4th, 1999, by Universal Film Studios. I mean, mummies can be the stuff of nightmares. You just have to ask Oedipus. <laughs> <laughs> The film had a budget of $80 million. For that sort of money, you could buy Trump's Boeing 5757 or have your enemies killed. <laughs> or perhaps that should be the other way round. <laughs> the film grossed five times that amount worldwide, showing how profitable it can be scaring people. I mean, just jumping out on them doesn't pay nearly as well and could get you an ASBO. <laughs> The film starred Brendan Fraser, Rachel Weiss, Arnold Woslu as Imhotek, the high priest, John Hanna, and the lovely Omid Dujalili acting in his very first film. One particular scene had to be repeatedly reshot because he kept ripping off his clothes and showing his bits. But I mean, being killed by scarabs tunnelling through your flesh and eating your brain would probably make one do that. <laughs> the director was Stephen Summers and he also wrote the screenplay. The film was a rousing, suspenseful and horrifying epic about an expedition of treasure-seeking explorers in the Sahara Desert in 1925. They stumbled upon an ancient tomb and they unwittingly set loose a 3,000-year-old legacy of terror embodied in vengeful reincarnation of an Egyptian priest sentenced to eternity as one of the living dead. I have an awful feeling that might be me. I mean, one of the living dead, that is. <laughs> I, I am very wrinkly, so I do have to check in the morning to see if I actually need to get up at all. And I just look 
on this wonderful website, www.deadoralive.com, <laughs> tells you which you are. So I've got my epitaph ready just in case. Here lies Shah, thin at last. <laughs> P.S. Wishes she'd had a bigger tattoo and more sex. Turns out it's only for famous people, so I'm back to checking my pulse, using lots of moisturiser, wrapping the bandages very tightly and trying not to scare people. But it was not just the plot of the film that was dangerous. Throughout the filming of The Mummy, members of the crew were often bitten by the spiders and insects native to the region. I mean, many of these animals were poisonous, so immediate medical aid was often required. There's some trivia now for film buffs. Shades of Room 101, Rachel Weiss had real rats crawl on her during the scene where she was tied up. Sounds as though this might be where the production team of I'm a Celebrity got some of their bush trucker tucker trial <coughs> ideas. Brendan Fraser nearly died during a scene where his character is hanged. Rachel remembered that he stopped breathing and had to be resuscitated. The white nightgown that Rachel, as Evelyn, wore when the ship was attacked became transparent when it got wet and had to be digitally painted white during post-production so the film could keep its PG-13 rating. <laughs> in 2004, Universal Studios theme parks in Hollywood and Orlando opened their Revenge of the Mummy rides. The rides became so popular that people had to queue for hours in the hot sun. And apparently, whenever the mo lines moved forward, fans would chant, Imhotek, 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 copying the hypnotised townspeople in the movie. Some of the cast thought the film was cursed when a fire broke out at the premiere. So the film is a special effects bonanza that is rather more impressive than the plot. The action is fast and furious and packed with dead bodies in abundance. Shot, stabbed, set alight, eaten by beetles, take your pick. So, if I have whetted your wish to see people dying in all manner of exciting and gruesome ways with some attempts at humour, rather like this little foray. <laughs> You'll be delighted to hear the film is available on Netflix. So, happy viewing, and I can't leave you without at least one crummy mummy joke. Which film would a mummy not want to see? Anyone? Tomb Raider. <laughs> <laughs> Just blame Alexa. Shawali, <laughs> thank you. Lovely headdress as well. <laughs> On this day in 1904, the historic meeting took place between Charles Stuart Rolls and Henry Royce at the Midland Hotel in Manchester. They were introduced by Henry Edmonds, a friend at the Royal Automobile Club. After a brief go at setting up a bakery under the Royce Rolls moniker, uh, they went on to co-found the successful Rolls-Royce car manufacturing firm, the first Rolls-Royce car uh, 10 horsepower was unveiled at the Paris Salon in December 1904. 
1896, at the age of 18, Rolls travelled to Paris to buy his first car, a Peugeot Phaeton, uh, believed to have been the first car based in Cambridge and one of the first three cars owned in Wales. In January 1903, Rolls started one of Britain's first car dealerships, C.S. Rolls & Co., based in Fulham, to import and sell French Peugeot and Belgian Minerva vehicles. It's unclear whether the owners of Penny Farthings were allowed trade-ins. Rolls was a pioneer aviator and initially balloonist, making over 170 balloon ascents. In 1903, he won the Gordon Bennett Gold Medal for the longest single flight time. Yes, uh, when I heard there was such a medal, I was equally surprised. <laughs> he became the second Englishman to go up in an aeroplane in 1908, which was piloted by Wilbur Wright. The flight lasted 4 minutes and 20 seconds, impressive as it's almost as long as a Boeing 737 MAX flight today. <laughs> yes, uh, he, became, <laughs> he became the first man to make a non-stop double crossing of the English Channel by plane in 1910. He hadn't intended to make a return trip, but had forgotten his mobile phone. So his name uh, lives on, even though Rolls was killed in an air crash at Hengistbury Airfield, Bournemouth, in 1910. Uh, his name lives on, of course, in the form of Rolls-Royce and the ever-popular Greg Sausage. <laughs> so, uh, again, no particular segue there, but on to our fourth guest. <laughs> I did have a Greg Sausage today. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It's all working so well. So James Benison. James won the I. YAF Brighton Fringe Stand-Up Comedy Award in 2015 for his show How to Be a Superhero and he tells me he once threw up on respected actor Neil Morrissey in a casino. I did indeed. Yes. So uh, here's James Benison, thank you. Thank you. I've, I've now realised that everyone else here has done a lot more research than I have done on Napoleon's exile um, but I have read over three Wikipedia entries on it, um, <laughs> as, as recently as last night, when, <laughs> when, when I, I wrote this. Um, and I, I, I need to point out now, I, I was distracted. I was babysitting my godson, George, who uh, needed constant attention and is a bit of a prick. So um, <laughs> luckily, I managed to distract him long enough to put together a summary of uh, events in the form of Wikipedia entries in which I have replaced some of the words so that I can pronounce them. Um, so, May 4th, 1814, Napoleon Bonaparte, I've realised now there's an autocorrect error there, I've not picked up on, Napoleon Bonaparte, no, Napoleon, the Emperor, <laughs> Emperor of France has abdicated the throne. England, tired of an unelected bureaucrat telling people what to do, decided to join a European Union to take him down, calling themselves the Allies. This former dictator is exiled to a small Mediterranean island off the Tuscan coast named the Isle of Idris Elba. <laughs> the, the Isle of Elba. So, I don't know if that word got put in. Anyway, uh, the Allies uh, gave uh, Napoleon sovereignty of the island and let him retain the title of emperor. His wife and son were sent to Austria and faced with the reality, and sorry, and he was faced with the reality that he would be stuck in charge of a small island for the rest of his life, in luxury, waited on hand and foot, and so Napoleon naturally tried to kill himself with a suicide pill before leaving for exile. Alas, apparently it was quite an old pill, and so it lost most of its potency, and so he survived. Uh, this is something I can relate to after I tried to take some ecstasy that I'd found left over from Glastonbury 2009. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although in my case I did accidentally do a poo off the end of Brighton Pit. Hang on, so that's not... 
That's not on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> just don't know how that. I'm just get, this bit goes off. I'm just that bit. Um, <laughs> most people believe Napoleon was a short male human. However, this may not be true. Whilst historians still fiercely debate if he was in fact human, most agree that he was average-sized for a man of those times, and that the whole short thing was just propaganda created by the English to make him seem less intimidating. It certainly did, however, lead to a lot of rude nicknames, such as Midge, Ankle Biter, Whippersnapper, Little Fella, Tinkerbell, Mighty Mouse, Shorty McShortface <laughs> and Nomosexual. <laughs> Hang on, I've just realised now that my, my godson George may have infiltrated my, my notes here. Um, I don't think Nomosexual is an actual term. Uh, right, I'm, so that's fine, I can probably, I'm going to carry on reading, but I can probably pick out the bits he's <laughs> just going to read ahead. I, I, I let him just research war poetry, and apparently that is. Boring. Um, sorry, here we go. Uh, resigning himself to life on Idris, on to life on Elba, <laughs> he began to develop the iron mines, oversaw the construction of new roads, issued decrees on modern agricultural methods, and overhauled the island's legal and educational systems. He even began building a small navy, which no one found suspicious in the slightest. <laughs> Elba had twelve thousand inhabitants, and if you look at the map here. That, Oh, okay. So I, I did have a visual aid, and I've just realised that George has um, graffitied this in quite a graphic way, making it look like a male m m member. Um, I I'll show it just for posterity. Um, as you can see here, just uh, I'll explain it visually for the podcast. You can see here, if you s these here would be the, the male testicles of the member, and he's, quite, he's done a very deformed <laughs> shaft. <laughs> just there. Quite horrific, actually. I think I've got a bit. No, no, this is the map. Sorry, this is actually what Elba looks like. Today, so <laughs> is. But if you are listening, you've got quite a good idea of what the geography of Elba looks like there, like a, like a penis. Um, after being held on Elba for nine months, Napoleon got fed up of imprisonment and decided to make a comeback. Unfortunately for him, whilst the French had really enjoyed the original Napoleon films, they weren't so keen on the newer ones. This is very much the same mistake that George Lucas made when he released Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Or the same mistake that George Lucas made when he released all of the Star Wars prequels. I thought I should get Star Wars in on May the 4th. Yay, first mention, yes. You're welcome. Uh, after 100 days of unpopularity, he tried for one last comeback at the Battle of Waterloo, which occurred in Waterloo a station on the banks of the Thames. In <laughs> it's hard to imagine the level of fear that would have gone through the minds of the soldiers faced with rush hour traffic. Sour-faced Londoners fiercely ignoring the raging battle <laughs> while trying to get to work. Arrogant businessmen not looking where they're going and knocking the Prussian artillery. Pregnant women asking Wellington's cavalry to give up their seats and the French army not knowing to stand on the right of the escalators. <laughs> but luckily we can get into their heads a little bit through some of this surviving war poetry, uh, as found by my godson George, and I promised I would read it out. <clears throat> my, my. At Waterloo, Napoleon did... <laughs> oh yeah, and I have met my destiny in quite a similar way. The history book on the shelf is always repeating itself... Waterloo, I was defeated, you won the war. Waterloo promised to love you forevermore. Waterloo couldn't escape if I wanted to, 
Waterloo, knowing my fate is to be with you. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> Waterloo. <clears throat> Finally facing my Waterloo. Chilling stuff there. <laughs> however, had the last laugh, haunting future Britons to this very day by combining strawberry, chocolate and vanilla ice cream and somehow creating something worse than all three, naming the flavour after himself, Napoleon-flavoured ice cream. <laughs> I, hang on, no, I've, I've... God damn it, George! Sorry. It's, uh, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, James Benson. <clears throat> Neapolitan, isn't it? Neapolitan ice cream. Mm. <sighs> Unbelievable. <laughs> On this day in 1924, the 8th Olympic Games opened in Paris, and it didn't end until 27th of July, so it lasted for 84 days. The Flying Finns dominated the long-distance running. Parvo Nermi won the cross-country run. He also won both the 1,500 metres and the 5,000 metres, even though there was only an hour between the two events. And the Olympics lasted 84 days. Not very good planning. <laughs> uh, British runners Harold Abrahams and Eric Little won the 100 and 400 metre events respectively, as depicted in the 1981 movie Chariots of Fire. Eric Little refused to run in the 100 metres as it took place on a Sunday. After the Olympics, he returned to China, where he'd been born to missionary parents to become a missionary himself. After the Japanese invasion in 1937, Little carried on his missionary work even when it became dangerous to do so. In 1943, he was interned at Waifang, and he died of a brain tumour just months before the end of World War II at the age of 43. Uh, because he'd been born in China, some people there regard him as the first Chinese Olympic gold medalist. Ironically, since Sunday trading laws were relaxed, Lidl now opens on a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, the fact from that Olympics, uh, 23 men scored a perfect 10 in the rope climbing event. Now, there's no way I could do well in rope climbing, but my partner has trained me well in wall climbing. Good. Well, I, should have, I, should, I should have ended at the previous one, shouldn't I? So now on to the, the, the second half of the show, moving swiftly on to talk about Brighton. Obviously, I'm, I'm not from these parts, uh, as I live in Scotland, so I'm willing to be educated by the, the locals on the panel here. But I, I have read that there are over 3,300 listed buildings and structures in Brighton and Hove. So it's obviously quite a historical place. Um, I read about St Bartholomew's Church in, uh. in the North Lane. Now, it's the tallest brick church in Europe and built to the same dimensions, allegedly, as Noah's Ark in Genesis. I've heard this. Yes. So if you see it, I can't imagine it floating in like a, <laughs> like a store. This thing won't float. Yeah. I mean, maybe turn it upside down, but even then... Boats should not be made of bricks. No, no. <laughs> I didn't really should they? plan that one very well. No, but it looks good. So uh, uh, apparently Noah's instructions uh, given to him by God is that the ark had to be 300 cubits long. I'm so sorry. That's totally... That's, that's your God. That's my mum. That, that was my mum. <laughs> good. Everything fine at home. Good. I hope so. Uh, so the, yeah, the ark had to be 300 <laughs> cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Now, if you work out these dimensions it actually works out it, it's a humongous thing it's like 450 feet long uh, 75 feet wide 45 feet high so this church must be it's massive huge. but I, I genuinely don't think you could fit loads of animals in there as well mm. and it's such a shame they put it in London Road which is a horrible road oh yeah it's yeah. A weird because London Road is horrible but you go in and there's just suddenly this nice kind of beautiful little garden um, but no elephants in the ark mm. 
or giraffes? Well, a thing that I read was that the height of this thing was equal to three giraffes stacked on top of each other. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous, because they only would have had two. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, oh, they, wow. Yeah, yeah but <clears throat> what if one gave birth? Oh, He's yes. got you there. Gotta, yeah, you got a plan. But they were only there yeah. for 40 days, though. What's mm. the gestation period of a giraffe? I don't know. I'll look it up on Wikipedia. Yes. <laughs> to be fair, if you were stacking giraffes, you put one upside down. So, Oh, yeah, like chairs. Yeah. You could easily get <laughs> six in three giraffe hunts. I mean, if you, but if you stack them on top like the yeah. chairs you do here, you could like get a fair few of them, I think. Like, you're not going to balance the giraffe on top of the head of the other no. giraffe, are you? That would be foolish. But a very good party game. <laughs> But um, in Brighton, uh, um, Brighton and Hove and Brighton especially, very proud of lots of its history. So we've got all the listed buildings. Uh, and one of my favourites, amongst the many monuments around Brighton, there is actually a plaque nearby this venue uh, in the alleyway where Phil Daniels had a go on Leslie Ash in Quadrophenia. <laughs> oh, right. Yes, of course that was Brighton, yes, yes. Is it just, just a plaque then? Uh, just, uh, I, I think no... it's now called Quadrophenia Alley. Yeah. Uh, which is hilarious, as all the things in the whole city so memorialised is <laughs> someone had sex in a, in a film in that place. <laughs> Super. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Brighton. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as a visitor to Brighton, I've, I've been coming down here for several years, I love it. I, what I like about Brighton, and I think what marks it out from any other city in the UK, is this the marvellous acceptance and tolerance you get in Brighton. Pretty much everything is accepted. Apart from Scottish money. <laughs> <laughs> I once had £200 in Royal Bank of Scotland, £20 notes. I could not spend them anywhere. There's no one who would take them. Did you not use your catchphrase? It's legal tender. It's legal tender. Yeah, that <laughs> doesn't cut much rice. Uh, and eventually, uh, somebody said, why don't you just take them to the bank? So I took them to the branch of the Royal Bank of Scotland in the <laughs> They wouldn't take them. Because <laughs> I didn't have an account. They said, no, we can't have these. It could be money laundering. So it's 200 quid. <laughs> I said, no, nah, you've not got an account. So I've got an account with the NatWest, and I came all the way back down here, took these notes to the NatWest, and they did change them. <laughs> and do you know who owns the NatWest? The Royal Bank of Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> Complicated. Mm. So, uh, I, because I live in Scotland, sometimes you know I have Scottish money when I'm down in England. So I, I, I understand mm. that this this sort of thing happens, um, and and I don't have much sympathy with the English who won't accept what is legal tender. Is legal tender. But uh, occasionally I'll be doing a show at the Fringe, and in the bucket uh, collection at the end, mm. uh, I'll get a Northern Irish note, and I think, how dare they put in this money that I'm not accepting this? So I kind of understand. The, the, the feeling, because Northern Irish notes, they don't look real, like real money, so... Yeah. Last year, <coughs> someone put some pesetas in my bucket. Huh? That's not legal tender anymore. Not even <laughs> in Spain. They've not no. been, a, <laughs> that was no been around for a while, have they? I think they were saving it just for me. Say <laughs> <laughs> so that was no reflection. <coughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I, yeah, I, during a chat show last year, with a bucket, and I got an old pound. How long is that person? An old you, pound, that's in a well, note. Well, an old pound coin. Oh, not a note. The one you can't even use in a supermarket oh, shop. Oh, that's, that's a thing. Yeah. Now, people are getting rid of them in uh, yeah. free oh, fringe yeah. buckets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We seed them up all year. Yeah. I've still got two. <laughs> I'm going to see a lot of free fringe shows at Brighton this year. It's about two. <laughs> okay, I'm going to introduce the topic here, which is uh, so a couple of Brighton people that I researched. So one 
was George Everest, who I, I worked out uh, uh, as Surveyor General of India. He's buried in St Andrew's Church in Hove. Now, he had no connection with Hove or Brighton at any time during his life. Uh, he died in London and was, was from Wales, so that was, a, that was a bit strange. But also, he had no direct connection with Mount Everest. So he'd never, he never even saw it. Uh, he, he did hire someone called Andrew Scott War as Surveyor General, and he made the first formal observations of the mountain and calculated its height. Uh, but in the meantime, Everest had retired and returned to England. Um, How tall was he? Which one? Everest? Everest. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It uh, doesn't say that on Wikipedia. Is he the guy that invented double glazing? Yes, yes, yes. You beat me to that one. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, that's all right. I was going to say, if you're talking about Everest, hope you're not going to start glazing over. Um, but yes, being, I mean, having the tallest mountain in the world named after you must have been the peak of his career. Good pun. Yeah, thank you. You can rely on <laughs> So uh, is that bringing out anything else for anyone talking about Everest? Apparently, in the notes to the Royal Geographical Society, when war came along and said, uh, look, I'm presenting this report to you. Uh, what I'm saying is there is this mountain, and we've, we've ascertained it is the tallest in the world. Now, apparently before that, it was just known as Peak 15. Mm. He said, well, we don't know of any name for it that the locals give it, so I want to call it after the previous Surveyor General, Everest. And, and, and apparently the, the final statement in this report was... In virtue of this privilege, in testimony of my affectionate respect for a revered chief, I have determined to name this noble peak of the Himalayas Mount Everest. So it wasn't even Mount Everest. <laughs> so that's a bit strange. I prefer Peak 15. It sounds cool. I think there is a local name for it. And if I remember rightly, it's Cash Cow for Stupid Tourists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, well. apparently now they have found that there were some native names. They just hadn't discovered those people yet. Uh, and their name for it, if I can, you know, I probably won't get this right, but it's Devadunga or it's Garisanka. Um, so, but, but, and, and the people who speak Hindi couldn't say the word Everest. So it seems like we were kind of imposing a bit uh, on them. Um, the English composing on other countries. Well, who'd have thought? What? Who'd have thought? This is going to come up a lot in this history show, I think. Uh, <laughs> so th there's a story I read, it, coincidentally, that came out on the Wikipedia Twitter uh, site this week, and it mentioned the, the fact that the Beatles had considered naming their new 1969 album Everest. Now, the story was that uh, no one wants to call it Everest because they didn't want to go to Nepal for the cover photo. Mm and instead they named it Abbey Road, <laughs> which was maybe slightly more convenient. I love that story. Uh, but the, the truth is apparently more mundane. Everest was just simply studio sound engineer Jeff Emmerich's favourite brand of cigarettes. Oh. So nothing to do with the mountain at all. But it makes a nice story, doesn't they it? They couldn't go to the cigarette factory for the photo. <laughs> yeah. OK, so if I've uh, got nothing more to say on that one, I was going to then mention about the speaking clock. Oh, yeah. So the current voice of the speaking clock is from Hove, and her predecessor was from Brighton. So a bit of history here. The BT speaking clock started on 24th of July 1936, and before it was invented, most people only had um, wind-up clocks. So they, to get an accurate time check, you had to ring the operator and ask her what the time was, and they would look at the exchange's wall clock and say, oh, well, it looks like it's, you know, uh, 12... About 25 past 12. Uh, so obviously it wasn't very precise and the customer 
couldn't even get through to the exchange a lot of the time. And there were speaking clock machines in Paris, The Hague, Switzerland and the USA. Um, and apparently in San Francisco, what there was was something you could, you could ring and it would give you lots of click, single and double buzzes and you had to kind of work out what it was from the formula. So this is like a really complicated system. By the system. time you've worked out, surely it's not that time anymore. The time had moved on, yes, yes, exactly. So, uh, and the, what I read about the speaking clock was because it says things like, at the third stroke. Mm. Now, apparently it was a GPO engineer, he was called Edmonds, for some reason objected to the word stroke being used. Uh, but he was overruled by the Postmaster General. So I'm sure there must be something amusing there about strokes and, and the Postmaster General being called Wood. <laughs> do you can't think what home. it might be. So, so. This is just a curiosity now, not even humour. Uh, does the speaking clock still exist? Yes, yes indeed. Yes. So the current voice right. is uh, Sarah Mendes de Costa. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Well, you know, can, well. <laughs> can I say I went in for the competition to oh, be this? They never got back to me. Did you have to work for BT? No, no, to, no, no. no, no right. You just had to send a recording in. Mm. So, no, she's an actor. Right, so Brian Cobby, he won a competition in 1985, but it was five, uh, amongst 5,000 staff who applied, apparently. Mm. So he, he was a member of staff. He was the first male voice of the clock and received £5,000 for, for, for becoming the voice. Uh, not Tom Jones. <laughs> kind of voice and he did it for 22 years till 2007 which is when Sarah took over when you say he did it for 22 years do you mean he has to sit in that office going, well <laughs> funny you should say that Time because apparently people used to think that he sat there the whole time mm. doing it yeah which is obviously totally ludicrous yeah, well yeah um, but he, he said what he met two he, people called in at, at one second apart yeah <laughs> yeah so, I, I'll be with you in a second <laughs> Um, What's it, the, uh, the, the thing that strikes me hilarious though is something as precise as the speaking clock mm. and the person doing that being from Brighton Hove, the most laid back city <laughs> in the world, with a, with, let's be honest, quite a strong cannabis culture. Mm. And it's actually a very little known fact that if you phone the speaking clock at exactly 4.20, <laughs> you are 100% more motivated than anyone else. <laughs> I, I always like, wondered, because like, um, they said, the time is sponsored by Accurate is... Four, twenty, and three seconds. Beep, beep, beep. And I'm like, how? But what, when is it? And I've just literally this sec, like right now, when you went on the third stroke, that's what the beeps are for. Yay. I've just worked that out now. <laughs> I was this years old when I worked that out. <laughs> yeah. I would have had such more accurate clocks as a child if I'd known then. <laughs> I was that's always seconds want. out. That is what you want as a child. More me. accurate clocks. Yeah, or, or for me, more friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so apparently, uh, Cobby was chosen because he had he, he had what was described as a clear, warm, and sensuous power of articulation in his voice, and he so he, he used to receive fan mail from people who, who <laughs> used the service. Uh, they used the service late at night just to hear his <laughs> calm voice. I suppose that was cheaper than a premium phone line. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yes, uh, I called you at 2am, but can I just say, you sounded amazing. I <laughs> Talking about those yeah. strokes. Yeah. I know someone who used to do the shipping forecast. Ah. Yeah, and she got really pervy fan mail from you. Were doing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine that. We're trying to think what they say on the shipping forecast. Dogger. Dogger. Oh, of course, yes. Yes, Dogger Bank. Yes, indeed. Mm. A few moments of silence there, but we all can imagine well, that. Yes, we're thinking about the shipping forecast. Um, so, uh, apparently it took two days 
just 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 two days for Cobby's voice to be recorded for all the all the essential parts that would be put together. But they forgot to say the word o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> so he had to go back to London just to record o'clock, and then that was it was all done and dusted. How long did that take? Uh, probably two, two, two strokes. <laughs> two strokes. Surely it should have taken exactly twenty-four hours, shouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. No, I think you could. You just count to sixty and you're done. That's yeah, it, really, isn't it? One take. I once did a radio voiceover for Iceland for an advert with Kerry Katona. Oh no! Yeah, God, talk about not getting stuff right. She, <laughs> she couldn't even get her own name right. Well, her first line was "Hi, I'm Kerry Katona." And she had, that took six takes. <laughs> Poor girl. Well, she can't get her name right because the cat's since died, so she's no longer a cat owner. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Yes, I do puns. You must know that by now. I, I love them. <laughs> I am your only fan <laughs> in the room. Thank you very much. Is, is there any topic that any of the panellists would like to introduce that they've done their own research well, on? Well, apparently or? Brighton is the second most haunted uh, city uh, in... <laughs> England after York hmm. um, and you know ghosts are a thing very very crucial to my heart really because um, funny it should come up actually because uh, I'm going to play uh, in Brighton Fringe at this very <laughs> venue about about yeah. ghosts in, in let's say Brighton it's not in Brighton but we'll say it it's just to link it into this um, but if you are interested it's at 9.15 uh, um, from the 20th to the 26th of uh, this month May thank you if I can get the podcast out in time. <laughs> Better have, yes, Richard. Yes. Two of these people are coming already because they're... Yeah. There's, 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 there's some explanation. If you do hear lots of um, wailing and crying around the streets of Brighton, some of it are ghosts and some of it are people like me who in the late 90s thought, I'm on the minimum wage job, but I can probably just about afford to buy a flat because they're only about 60k, and then went, no, I'll wait until later. <laughs> uh, just set up a dress there now. About I think the average for a flat now is about 240k compared to the 60k when I decided not to buy one. <laughs> uh-huh. Are you okay? Well, wailing and moaning through the streets. Mm. <laughs> that explains so, a lot. Brighton and then York. York's Mo- number one. Yeah. But you can yeah. kind of get that with York because when you go to York, mm. you have to go like through a time vortex to get there. Yeah. Um, um, Edinburgh, a lot of ghosts in Edinburgh as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think there's a correlation between having a lot of ghosts and having a lot of gullible tourists. <laughs> <laughs> I'm intrigued with Phoebe Hessel. I don't know if any of you have heard of her, um, who is buried in St. Nicholas' Churchyard. And, I mean, she was a perfect Brighton and Hove inhabitant because she went off to war um, uh, dressed as a man. Um, and uh, she served uh, in the 5th Regiment of Foot, beside her lover, so, you know, it all fits together so beautifully. And she served as a soldier in the West Indies and Gibraltar. Um, And then she she and her lover were wounded in 1745, and then she came out, (laughs) as people often do in Brighton, um, and uh, she and her lover, they were both discharged, and they married. and apparently, according to a sergeant of the regiment, her gender was revealed when she was undressed to be whipped. Oh. <laughs> Upon mm. which she only commented, strike and be damned. Uh, and she <laughs> wasn't punished, but her salary was taken away. Um, and then she went on to have nine children, um, came back to Brighton after her husband died, um, and married a fisherman, uh, Thomas Hessel. And she lived until she was 107. 
Wow. And uh, her life spanned the reigns of six monarchs. And as I say, you can see her graveyard. And, uh, you know, perfect mm. cross-dressing. That's amazing. Wow. Like, it's like a British version of Mulan. <laughs> so, now the, so the story goes that her superiors in the army didn't know she no, was a woman, no, but no. surely somebody in payroll noticed she was getting 20% less than everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Uh, yes. perfect, was perfect. she, did, so did she get, um, join up because her, her lover was doing it, yes. or did they meet there? No, no, she went to be with him. Because that makes more sense, because mm. yeah. you have to really take a, a chance, wouldn't you? Yeah. What a large-breasted man. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, our time is almost up. It, it, it's really flown. Uh, I probably used about half the material I was hoping to, but it's been great fun. I hope everyone's enjoyed it in the audience and, and on the panel. Uh, I'd just like to thank the guests who come along today. So uh, please thank uh, John Rand, uh, Vladimir McTavish, Shaw uh, Wiley, and James Benison. And I'd also like to thank Sweet Works and the Brighton Fringe Festival. We do have more shows, including one tomorrow in this very venue. It'll be a totally different show. It'll be about 5th of May, and I'll have some other material on, on Brighton. Um, the podcast will be at uh, different festivals in Droitwich, Ludlow, Buxton, Bedford, Guildford, Reading, York, and at the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, which we'll be advertising in due course. As a final on this day, on the 4th of May, 1471... Uh, it was the Battle of Tewkesbury, uh, one of the decisive battles of the Wars of the Roses. The forces loyal to the House of Lancaster were completely defeated by those of the rival House of York under their monarch, King Edward IV. Now, if you're unsure which rose was which, red rose represented the House of Lancaster, and white rose is a posh supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, and goodbye. Click record on that way. Oh, yeah. <laughs>